This is not the media. This is hell. Well, the pandemic continues to get worse and worse, and there appears no end in sight. That is, unless you believe the tall tales of the Trump administration, which they've been telling for nearly nine months now. Fables of rounding the corner and at the corners a vaccine, a cure that will save us all at any moment now, just as soon as the wonderful market born of capitalism saves us from this nightmare. Problem is, it's a nightmare that same market created and expecting them to prioritize people over profits. That's just not what capitalism or the market does. What it does do is prioritize itself over people. And you can see that throughout our healthcare system and the response to the pandemic. Save the system. The lives of people are merely the cost we pay to save capitalism. And a mad dash back to the normal that started this all in the first place. What the pandemic has revealed to those who are paying attention and are not afraid to recognize reality is that our wholly unfair, unequal way in which we live can no longer continue if we do not want pandemic after pandemic after pandemic forcing us to stay indoors, socially distanced from the rest of humanity, while waiting for a technological miracle that may never arrive. Yeah, it's pretty grim, despite what President Trump wants you to believe. And we'll learn all about it in a few when we have the return of epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. Rob is an evolutionary epidemiologist with the Agroecology and Rural Economics Research Corps. You can find out more about them at arerc.wordpress.com. Rob is the author of the 2016 book, Big Farms Make Big Flu, Dispatches on Infectious Disease, Agribusiness, and the Nature of Science. And we should have been talking to Rob about this back in 2016. Rob has consulted with the Food and Agriculture Organization and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. This is Rob's third appearance on This Is Hell this year, having been on both in March in and in April. When Rob was on our show last, we spoke with him and Alex Liebman about their monthly review article, COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital, an essay that is included in Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. Go to thisishell.com and search on Wallace to find more of our conversation on Rob's and Alex's writing. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth, live stream, podcast, radio show host, whatever this is, Chuck Mertz. Producing is Alex Jerry. Alex, how are you? I'm good. Still muffled wearing masks. Because? Because Jess is here. Say hi, Jess, in your muffled voice. Hi, Chuck. I'm muffled. (laughs) I love that muffled sound. That's Jess Lipka, one of our newest producers to be working here on This Is Hell. Please remind us, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? This week's question from hell is, and as courtesy of Daphne, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? What else will fall with the autumn leaves? She wrote that? Yep. It's poetic and beautiful. The person with our favorite answer to this week's question from hell wins our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now by going to our site, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell, what else will fall with the autumn leaves, what else will fall with the autumn leaves, at our Facebook page, facebook.com slash thisishellradio, or you can direct message it to us via Twitter at This Is Hell Radio. You can email it to either of us, Chuck at This Is Hell.com, Alex at This Is Hell.com, but you have to send your message, your response in by the end of show Thursday following Jeff Dorchin in the Moment of Truth when we announce our favorite and who wins the new black This Is Hell t-shirt. This week during the Moment of Truth, Jeff shows up with the conclusion of the spiel on class 
consciousness. Alex will be telling us how you are answering this week's question from hell following our guest. Maybe Jess will, too. Again, email us your answer to chuckatthisishell.com, alexatthisishell.com. Post them on our Facebook page or tweet them to us by the end of Thursday's show. Immediately following yesterday's show, we got a message via Facebook from Michael, who writes... Hi, this is Hell. I'm looking over your merchandise at thisishell.com, and I'm waffling between buying your trucker's cap and or mask and waiting for you guys to make a This Is Hell toque available with the same logo design as the cap for the same price. Please advise when or if you are considering Saskatchewan-esque weather merch. Oh, reminds me. Do you deliver outside the United States? Stay safe, guys. Michael. Yes, Michael, we do deliver outside of the United States, which is part of our stupid putting people before profits business model. Michael's idea for a This Is Hell toque was such a great idea that we contacted our swag people and they said, yes, in fact, they do have a winter cap and I should be getting the design today when we do and we have a This Is Hell gray on black toque available. We'll let you all know, including Michael, who had this brilliant idea. We also want to thank... For going to thisishell.com and getting some This Is Hell merch, Brianna, who clicked on support when she went to thisishell.com. And thanks to Kylie, who became our newest Patreon subscriber at patreon.com slash thisishell, where you can hear a new monologue from me every week and an interview from our archives that is currently unavailable anywhere else. This past Friday, I explained how I do my part in putting This Is Hell together every day and week and kind of behind the scenes look at This Is Hell, if you will. But if you actually want to see and experience This Is Hell behind the scenes, you can by becoming a This Is Hell board operator and producer. We also heard from another listener who is interested in being a board operator here on This Is Hell. Katie writes, hey, Chuck, I'm interested in helping out as a board operator. I'm currently finishing up a seasonal gig in California. I wonder if she's fighting fires. But I'll be coming home to Chicago by the end of October with too much free time on my hands. I could definitely make it at least a weekly commitment. I only recently found This Is Hell, but I've really been enjoying the content. In particular, your conversations with David Graber. Looking forward to hearing from you. Best, Katie. Free time on your hands? Willing to make a weekly commitment? Fan of David Graber? That all sounds good to us, Katie. Alex will be contacting you shortly and hopefully scheduling you to be coming in here later this month to be trained on the board, as Jess and Daphne have been, if you are listening right now and would like to join the crew here on This Is Hell as a board operator, running the board, as Alex has done, as Richard does, as Daphne is learning to do, as Jeff is, Jess is learning to do. If I say Jeff one more time, I'm going to punch myself. Email me at chuck at thisishell.com if you have absolutely no experience in operating a mixing board. That's totally cool. Alex swears it's easy, and he does a great job, I am assuming, <laughs> training new board operators. Uh, this volunteer position does come with a very, very modest stipend as well as access to a professional studio where you can work on your own projects as well. If you would like to be the newest producer here on This Is Hell, email me at chuck at thisishell.com. Yesterday when I asked our newest producer, Daphne, to join us here, uh, our newest producer to join us here on This Is Hell, Daphne, uh, when I asked her what how her weekend was, she mentioned how she spent it reading up on decolonial feminisms. However, we didn't mention the actual title Daphne is reading, and it's called Decolonizing Feminism, Transnational Feminism and Globalization. It's edited by Margaret McLaren, and it came out in 2017. The authors argue feminist theory must address the historical legacies of colonialism, post-colonialism, and more recently, decoloniality. So if you want to read what Daphne is reading, 
That's Decolonizing Feminism, Transnational Feminism and Globalization from 2017, and it's edited by Margaret McLaren. Also following the show, we got an email from Andrew who writes, Hey Chuck, I know you're a voracious consumer of mainstream media, so maybe you saw last week when the Chicago Tribune wrote a whole article about a tweet from President Obama that referenced faculty and students at Northwestern University working with their local police department on reform. I did not see that, Andrew. Uh, I have to admit, I've been really cutting back on my local Chicago news that I've been consuming. So, yeah, I completely missed this story. Andrew continues. And again, we are broadcast every Saturday morning from 9 a.m. to 1 p.m. All four of our regular weekly shows on WNUR, Northwestern University Radio. And despite what Thomas Frank was saying on the show last week, we are no longer broadcasting from Evanston. Our studio is here in Chicago. We have our own studio, but our show is still broadcast out of Northwestern University, which is in Evanston. Andrew continues. What the Tribune article ignored was that for every single day since last Monday, that's eight days now, Northwestern University students have shut down streets in Evanston calling for abolition of police and the prison industrial complex. There's also been some lovely abolitionist art spray painted around the downtown area if you get the chance to check it out. The mainstream press isn't reporting on the protests or the militarized police force that gets sent out to meet them every day and night. So I thought that maybe you should. You can find out more at the Twitter account at CopsOutOfNU. Thanks, Andrew. So the protests are about abolishing the Northwestern University Police Department, although they also seem to be part of the larger defund the police actions. Responding to the protest, Northwestern President Morton Shapiro said, your concerns are valid and necessary, and we encourage and in fact rely on your active engagement with us to make your school and our society equitable and safe for everyone. That said, and whenever somebody says that said, it's like a gigantic but or however... That said, while the university has every intention to continue improving NUPD, Northwestern University Police Department, we have absolutely no intention to abolish it. So your complaints are all valid, but your solution ain't going to happen. You can find some writing on the protest at Northwestern's student newspaper's website, dailynorthwestern.com, and an article by Isabel Seraf and Bina Shotsky. They report for over a month a mask-shaped sign reading We're N This Together, Northwestern University, We're N This Together, hung from the Weber Arch at the entrance of Northwestern's campus. It was meant to symbolize a unified start to Northwestern's academic year, but was often mocked by students instead, which you would think it would be because we are not all N This Together. By 11.51 p.m. Saturday night, the sign was on the ground. By 11.53, it was in flames. And by 12.30 a.m., it was in a crumpled heap at the feet of police officers guarding the home of University President Morton Shapiro. About 300 students, led by members of Northwestern University community Not Cops, gathered in front of Foster Walker Complex Saturday night for the sixth consecutive day of marches demanding the abolition of Northwestern University police. So if you want to know what's happening, uh, check out the Daily Northwestern website, or like Andrew said, you can find out more by following at CopsOutOfNU on Twitter, where the most recent post is Tuesday, October 20th, meet up at Allison Dining Hall at 4.45 p.m., that's today, time for the community dialogue. We'll have it all set up for you to watch. Come with blankets or chairs, come with snacks, come with some friends, or you can just follow the hashtag NU Community, not cops. Hashtag NU Community, 
not cops. Coming up, the pandemic continues because of a refusal to recognize the real causes of the pandemic. Alex or Jess will have some of your answers to this week's question from hell, which is the poetic question. What else will fall with the autumn leaves? What else will fall with the autumn leaves? The person with our favorite answer to this week's question wins our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now by going to our website, thisishell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question mail at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you have to have your answer in by the end of the show on Thursday. Because following Jeff Dorch in the Moment of Truth, we will be announcing the winner of this week's question from hell. During this week's moment, Jeff shows up with the conclusion of his spiel on class consciousness. Another end of the world is possible. This is hell. The pandemic rages on here in Illinois. We had more coronavirus cases added in the last week than any state but Texas. And Texas is doing horribly. So what explains why we are not addressing the virus in a way that would not have killed more than 220,000 people who up until seven months ago were living in the United States? Here to help us get a clearer picture on the pandemic returning to This Is Hell, epidemiologist Rob Wallace is author of Dead Epidemiologists on the Origin of COVID-19. Welcome Welcome back to This Is Hell, Rob. Hi, Chuck. It's a pleasure to be here. It's always great to have you on the phone. It's always great to have you not be a dead epidemiologist yourself. We'll get into the what happened with you and getting COVID in just a moment. But when you were on in April, you appeared with Alan Liegman, who uh, you had co-authored the article COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital for Monthly Review. And that's one of the uh, essays that's included in this book. In that article, you wrote, an epidemiology team at Imperial College projected that the best campaign in mitigation, flattening the plotted curve of accumulating cases by quarantining detected cases and socially distancing the elderly, would still leave the United States with 1.1 million dead and a case burden eight times the country's total critical care beds. Disease suppression looking to end the outbreak would take public health further into a China-style case and family member quarantine and community-wide distancing, including closing down institutions. That would bring the United States down to a projected range of around 200,000 deaths. The U.S. has already experienced a reported death total around 220,000, although that number is likely low compared to the actual number of deaths due to the virus. Back when you were on in April, a million people in the United States dying from the pandemic was not a prediction you were hearing in the establishment corporate news media. Instead, they were still talking about keeping the death totals around 60 or 70,000. Are we still on that same path that you saw us on toward a million dead in the United States due to the virus? Well, I'm hard to hard pressed to project uh, numbers at this point. Uh, it's really hard to tell uh, in what direction. Clearly, we are already, as you said, already 200,000 plus. So uh, unfortunately, one would say the sky is the limit. Uh, the United States uh, government uh, at all levels of jurisdiction has done very little in terms of intervening. Um, this is a half-ass kind of lockdown for some people uh, versus others. Um, there's supposed to be a vaccine on its way. We're not quite sure if it uh, the one does arrive. It's unlikely to be uh, a, a partial vaccine, partially protective. Um, the country is organized around a particular ethos that it's unable to escape, uh, and that is one of a kind of neoliberal paradigm in which governance is around. Uh, uh, organized around uh, getting the rich richer and uh, basically bailing out of uh, what we would uh, consider uh, governance, which is uh, protecting the people ostensibly uh, uh, governments are 
supposed to uh, represent. Other countries don't have that problem. Uh, as, as different as countries as Vietnam and New Zealand were, are, have been very much upfront about uh, taking care of their people, even without a vaccine available. So just by virtue of campaigns of non-pharmaceutical uh, interventions, they are able to drive their outbreaks down to, to zero or near zero. Um, so to answer your question direct, uh, is a million plus possible? Yes, um, I would certainly say so. I mean, uh, we are having uh, ostensibly this third wave, which I don't think is a third wave here in the United States. It's still uh, the first wave because we never got out of the first wave. Um, uh, we had a couple spikes there uh, early on and then in the summer, and now we're entering the winter phase, which, uh, as you described for Illinois, is exploding everywhere. So um, there's an aspect of, of an unfortunate sense of a shrug on my part. I mean, I don't, of course, it's incredibly awful and terrible, but it's all uh, at the same time very predictable. And uh, the political economy can't get its mind wrapped around the, the necessity of moving away from uh, servicing the rich and taking care of the population. So yes, indeed, uh, a 1.3 uh, million death possibility is still in the cards. You just said this was all very predictable, and you write about how the way that viruses work, the way that pandemics work, is they usually start in ur urban areas, and then they bleed out, if you will, to rural areas. Those uh, urban areas are often the places where the most uh, democratic states or have the largest democratic, have the largest cities. So places like New York City uh, have a, had the virus at the beginning. You, we heard President Trump over and over again saying these are all happening in democratic states. Now that it has moved on to more rural areas, is it now in re Republican states? Is that logic now something that Trump cannot use because all of a sudden you're seeing red states getting the virus? Well, I think Trump's trapped by his incompetence. Uh, clearly, right from the start, he, uh, he got to a point that every decision his uh, administration made uh, top down was uh, actually the wrong one. So if you had any doubt about what the possibility would be in terms of uh, uh, the, the good thinking around uh, any particular uh, decision, you probably would make a good uh, guess by voting against it or betting against it. Uh, they got it wrong right from the start and just about every decision they made since. Uh, so now he's trapped by his record. So uh, he's in uh, utter de denial. And um, even as it blazes through uh, the Republican states, as it were, um, he's pretending that it's not happening. Uh, that might have a considerable impact on his, uh, his election uh, prospects, I would say, for certain. Uh, even as many uh, people have uh, basically um, uh, refused to tell um, uh, political pundits uh, who they're voting for in, in the last election that certainly went in Trump's favor, uh, they may be uh, going in the other direction. So you have Trump supporters may not actually be in telling uh, pollsters uh, whether or not that they'll, they won't be voting for the president. And I think... Uh, He's in something of a denial and shock, and uh, he, um, you know, I mean, I, I don't want to make this merely about one persona, but he some, uh, in some ways uh, represents the American id, the incapacity to understand that uh, American exceptionalism uh, collapses when you've uh, taken all efforts to destroy Fortress America. I mean, that's been going on for 40 years. That's what neoliberalism has been about, undercutting the uh, public health system and uh, other social services necessary to protect ourselves from an outbreak like this. Uh, and so we go from uh, projecting the CDC as a, an arm of imperial might, 
going to countries around the world, quashing outbreaks so that um, uh, the capitalist system in, in American hands can continue. Uh, we go from that to, in a matter of months, uh, having a CDC that's been completely uh, politicized in a direction that uh, uh, it won't even respond to an outbreak within our borders. So it has all the markings of, uh, or the smell of a, of a failing nation state. And um, I, even as the American people have been uh, repeatedly um, trapped by uh, many of the assumptions of, of that empire, the day-to-day uh, -day life of uh, being either stuck at home or unemployed. I mean, we're clocking in at 60 million plus uh, um, unemployment uh, uh, claims. Um, you know, there's only so much punching down you can do. You want to blame immigrants. You want to, you know, uh, blame black and brown people. At some point uh, in the day, you have to look around and see that uh, the system has failed you. And we might see that in the coming election. We might see that afterwards. Even if Biden gets into power, he has uh, obligations to the bourgeoisie here in terms of making the machinery continue to go. Will uh, Biden uh, get into better dealing with the outbreak, probably. Um, but uh, it's the outbreak is, a, is appearing as a mirror for us and into which we're looking upon uh, the nature of our country and seeing that uh, the premises and principles around which we uh, are conducting our affairs are, are completely unable to respond to um, um, deadly um, dangers that extend beyond just the pandemic, but uh, in the, in the decades to come, climate change as well. I want to get to those notions of American exceptionalism and Democratic Party complicity in the spread of the virus in a moment. But yesterday we were talking with award-winning journalist Gloria Dickey on her writing at The Guardian on the Arctic ice cap, which will likely melt by 20. 35 now, according to the most recent estimates. Gloria said that it seemed from people she was talking to that everyone has given up on behavioral changes or modification in addressing climate change and instead are thoroughly relying on technology to provide a miracle. Gloria compared that to our reaction to COVID-19. How likely is that technological miracle? Because you write biomedical prospects remain hazy. Hundreds of labs around the world are on the hunt for an effective vaccine against SARS-2 between the bouts of misplaced optimism for and caustic pessimism against a vaccine touted ready in six months, there is the reality that no successful coronavirus vaccine has ever been produced. It's truly a difficult problem. If there never has been a vaccine for any SARS, then what is the likelihood there will be one for COVID-19? Do we simply have to wait for the current SARS to go away like the others seemingly have? Because I have not heard that there has never been a SARS vaccine in the past until I read your writing. Well, I mean, um, you know, some of the data coming in indicate that some of the, the vaccine uh, trials are, are at least partially successful. Some of them uh, are pressed on pause because of uh, some side effects that have emerged. Um, so there is always a possibility that, uh, and, and considering how much time and attention and money has been dedicated to it, that they, they, they can crack the difficult nut there and come up with a, a vaccine that is, that, is, uh, that is at least partially protective. Um, the problem is, is that even with an efficacious vaccine, a vaccine that works, it doesn't necessarily mean that it, it will be effective. And this has come up in a number of times. Uh, they came up with a vaccine for Ebola, 
but uh, the uh, outbreak in the Congo that recently wound, uh, wound down was this, uh, the longest uh, outbreak of Ebola ever. And uh, that has to do with the, uh, the mistrust of the uh, uh, Congolese people for the UN efforts down there. It has to do with the, uh, the failure of, um, of the nation state in terms of distribution. Um, ultimately, a, a vac effective vaccine isn't just uh, accomplished in the laboratory. Uh, it has to extend out to uh, uh, the trust that um, uh, any government or vaccine campaign can in, in, engage with, uh, with the population and uh, the distribution and all that. I mean, we're at a point that if the early uh, months of the outbreak are indicating the United States is not capable of, uh, of that kind of uh, um, operation. I um, mean, you, you know, uh, you compare China that who sent 40,000 health workers into Hubei, the, the province with, uh, where Wuhan is situated, uh, in order to uh, meet the scale of the outbreak with uh, the scale of public health necessary to intervene. But if you spent the last 40 years stripping out public health and monetizing it and neglecting it, uh, you, you presently do not have the capacity to, uh, to meet the, the needs necessary to, um, to distribute such a, a vaccine. And so, you know, half the American people are pulling in that they wouldn't take a vaccine. If the deaths continue and if the vaccine proves effective, that may flip over. Uh, many more Americans would be uh, uh, willing to do so. Uh, but even an uh, efficacious vaccine requires uh, a trust that has been fundamentally lost, not only by Trump, but, uh, you know, uh, many decades of, uh, of slamming and de destroying even the notion of public health. So that has to be built up again. Uh, that may take time. And in the meantime, uh, people will continue to be uh, infected. Uh, I, I want to be very clear. I'm not against vaccines. I'm not an anti-vaxxer in any way, shape, or form. Um, vac vaccines are, for the most part, uh, effective uh, uh, across multiple diseases. Uh, I mean, really bringing down mortality rates below, uh, um, you know, what were 90% uh, mortality rates are, are down to almost nothing. Uh, it's been very much a campaign of the left for uh, uh, 100 years plus to uh, try to get the, the, the latest in medical innovation uh, to the greater population. So that is certainly a, a proud uh, tradition in, in doing so. Um, but, uh, and here again, uh, this, is, this is where, you know, all the comparisons with influenza and such are, are all problematic because it all depends on, uh, while influenza, we know the kind of distribution of both the problem and the very solutions we have at hand. Um, we have no really inkling about uh, what the future presents to us. Um, there has been very much a rush to market. Some of the vaccine efforts have uh, skipped the usual stages. Some have skipped uh, the animal testing stage. Some are skipping uh, past the phase three testing on humans. Um, you know, it might be uh, overall society, we've decided that we're going to um, take some risk because we need, uh, because of everything that failed beforehand, a refusal to engage in the kind of non-pharmaceutical campaigns that other countries were able to do and, and quash their outbreaks in two and a half months, because we have decided that we, we are not that kind of country, that we can't do the simple things necessary to block this, we're going to have to do it the complicated way, which seems a little ass backwards. 
because the, the presumption that vaccines work for other diseases means that vaccines will work for this disease is uh, a, a deeply problematic and um, could be very much a, a, a false premise. Sociologist William I. Robinson was recently on our show to discuss his book, The Global Police State. And at one point, William was talking about the problems with capitalism, with the market in dealing with the crisis, especially a public health crisis. And William said there are very promising gene therapies that could address many of the diseases that plague us, but they are not pursued because there isn't the money to be made in an actual cure as there is to be made in an ongoing treatment. We keep hearing from the Trump administration about this pharmaceutical company's vaccine and that uh, company's potential fix for COVID. What is the impact of the market on finding a cure for COVID? Right. Well, it, it, it can cut in multiple directions. It depends uh, often, first and foremost, you go, well, who has money to pay for this, right? So a lot of the neglected tropical diseases aren't dealt with because uh, uh, these are populations that don't have money. And increasingly, uh, UN agencies and, and uh, even wealthy governments around the world are unable to uh, back such efforts, uh, even if some of these diseases um, might be dangerous to us. I mean, they have... Uh, up until now, they haven't been, right? So we go, uh, you know, uh, even as malaria kills 3 million people a year, you know, these are poor people in the global south for the most part who cares about them. And uh, and also, in addition, malaria is one of those complicated diseases that even if we have an effective uh, 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 medicine for it, it doesn't necessarily mean that that brings it to a conclusion. And uh, this is the, the, the world we're in because uh, previously uh, effective... Uh, uh, vaccines and drugs uh, for, let's say, polio. These what I would call a reductionist disease in the sense of that it is some of the disease, um, you know, the whole of the disease is the sum of its parts and that if you have a, a vaccine that knocks one of its parts, then the, the, uh, the, the uh, disease will collapse as an epidemiological phenomenon. But what that does is, is that uh, when you get rid of some diseases, other diseases emerge to take its place. You know, sources of mortality compete with each other. Um, and some of the diseases that are emerging to take uh, the place of those diseases that bend to our reductionist science are diseases, what I call holistic diseases. They are operating in multiple levels of biocultural organizations. So if you come up with a highly active retroviral uh, therapies for um, uh, HIV, which is very good, it's important, it saves people's lives, it doesn't necessarily stop the, uh, the AIDS uh, epidemic. Uh, because most of the uh, infections uh, accrue uh, in the first foremia, in the first uh, few weeks of someone's infection, they infect other people. So by the time they figure out they are infected and we give them the effective drugs, um, it saves uh, people. But uh, as far as an epidemiology, HIV continues to spread. So that's the kind of uh, pathogens that are emerging and uh, taking over. These are our pathogens that do not respond well to uh, the social, uh, the ways we organize ourselves as society. So they don't, res they didn't get the business memo. They don't get the, uh, the company memo that they're supposed to respond to the market uh, interventions that we have. So some vaccines, even if uh, they are effective, are, uh, I mean, are e efficacious, aren't actually working at the population level. Um, drugs that are working uh, and at the individual level in terms of any one infection aren't actually clearing out uh, the outbreaks at the population level. And so 
we have that uh, terrible combination of diseases that uh, whose life histories do not reflect our uh, operative assumptions as a society. And also we have the, the marketplace, which uh, typically gravitates toward uh, uh, drugs and um, interventions uh, that can be paid for and are not just paid for, but are lucrative. Um, and uh, diseases don't really care about that, you know, really. I mean, if you're interested in protecting Fortress America or Fortress Europe, uh, they will be perfectly happy to circulate elsewhere. Uh, the thing is that our global travel network is so integrated, our, uh, uh, our global economy is so integrated that um, those barriers are coming down uh, in such a way that, uh, you know, an Ebola that would spill over and hit a village uh, now and then now is able to make its way to regional capitals and, and threaten to get on a plane here to the U.S., um, and more acute infections that spread uh, by you know, respiratory tract more easily uh, in, uh, in, uh, transmissible are able to emerge out of a cave in China in a, in a matter of a, a couple of years, um, make its way to Miami Beach in, in short order. Um, so that presumption, that kind of global north, global south divide that's uh, uh, has been we've been depending on. Now I say we, I meant the global north, <laughs> and those who make money uh, here are depending on. Is that the they want to be able to treat the global south as both their refrigerator and their toilet. So all the damage, all the resources are taken out of the global south. All the damage is left there. But um, uh, uh, nature, as it were, is not cooperating in that way. Or, uh, in that uh, many of the uh, much of the damage that's emerging, whether it be a pandemic or, or climate change, uh, is now uh, able to spread around the world in such a way that that kind of um, uh, uh, awful, terrible, and at this point outdated mode of uh, uh, existing as a global society uh, are, are utterly ineffective at this point and uh, is uh, open to the, the worst of damage that uh, can emerge uh, by virtue of not, uh, not um, um, understanding and acting as if uh, we indeed are, are one global population at this point. We are speaking with epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. You can hear more of our discussion about the content of this book because we are discussed uh, one of the chapters in his book, COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital, with Rob and co-author Alex Liebman back in April. You can go to thisishell.com, search on Rob's name, and find our conversation with Rob and Alex about their writing. You were the first person we had on the show to discuss the pandemic back in March. When we called you, you told Alex, producer, uh, our producer, you were pretty certain you had the virus, but you could still do the interview despite the fact that immediately after you would probably be seeking medical assistance. We've heard descriptions of how awful the virus can be, but what is something that you think gets overlooked when it comes to the suffering you experience with the virus? What's something that you think is important for everyone to understand that does not get mentioned enough? Um, the notion that, uh, you know, a mild infection is something um, that's not a problem or a danger um, because we have in our head our, uh, what a mild uh, or cold would be or a mild uh, flu thing, you know, knocked out uh, for a, a few days. Uh, but this is a, a, an infection, a whole order of difference in terms of its impact. I mean, like... Um, Avian influenza outbreak of 1918, 
in which, um, you know, a third of the population um, that were infected, it was no big deal. And a third of the population, it, it was just a, like a usual uh, flu. And then a third of the population had their viscera, you know, liquidated. I mean, so there's a much broader range of, of possibilities in terms of um, clinical outcome. And I had what I considered a kind of mild infection, um, but we, you don't know, particularly in the early days in, in March, it wasn't clear um, what the various outcomes could be, in part because uh, the U.S. was so focused on, um, you know, parading around it, uh, in some strange victory uh, as China was uh, on its heels from its own outbreak, instead of taking notes about what the Chinese were learning uh, and, and could have been broadcasted to, to the entirety of the United States about what the nature of the virus was and what we were going what the government was going to do to help us uh, for any one of us. Um, so I, I was uh, struck um, by how, um, how terrible it was. I mean, I, as I describe in the book, I had a 12-day headache. I had um, dizziness. And then I, uh, as the uh, virus infiltrated my lungs, I started to lose capacity to breathe. So I had shortness of breath, typically later in the day. Uh, we have learned since that, you know, you get rid of CO2 during an infection, but your oxygen levels go down. So you're, con you're confused because some of the day you're like, oh, this is whatever. And then uh, other parts of the day, you're, you know, uh, you're laid out in your bed and gasping for breath for a half hour trying to catch up on the oxygen you've lost. So, um, you know, it, it's and none of us quite know, uh, you know, what kind of infection you get. I, I have a feeling I had what I would consider kind of a middle aged version of it. If um, clearly there are those who are in the, the nursing homes and are older who get really walloped bad and, and the, you know, much of the death rate, much of the death load has been in that uh, demographic. But um, that doesn't mean that if you're younger, uh, that you'll be able to get scot-free. I mean, you have youngins who've uh, uh, been uh, snuffed from this. So um, um, I think that's that's the first thing that comes to mind. The second thing uh, was uh, how I was uh, utterly uh, ab abandoned by uh, public health. And I, I comes clearly throughout the book. Uh, that's a theme that emerges, um, but on a personal level to feel that. I got, um, um, my doctor wouldn't see me. Well, okay, makes sense. You don't want to go down and, and get, um, uh, you know, spread the outbreak in the, at your primary clinic. But um, I, I, the, uh, she, uh, she never called back. I never uh, heard from her. And um, uh, there was, I got sent to an, um, uh, a website to be diagnosed and I, there was a, a nurse who by virtue of the symptoms that I entered into the computer said yes you you, you have COVID uh, but there was no follow I mean it's only the only follow-up was if it gets any worse and you feel in danger go to the hospital the problem with this is an infection is if it's serious enough your um, executive function starts to decline and you can't really make decisions so you have to have people check up on you and I had uh Friends and family uh, call me uh, every day, and you know you hear the heartbreaking stories of uh, people being uh, sealed off from their friends and family, uh, and it's really hard to make those any kind of decisions, uh, both as a patient and as a family member. Um, so you know there was no community health worker who knocked on my door. There was no follow up. There's no one. I had some uh, friends and family leave some soup outside my door. But as a society, I mean, we were just completely um, 
dropped the ball on this one. Um, and, you know, the medical staff uh, in this country have done wonders in terms of not just saving people, but figuring out on the fly um, what to do. So that explains in part the decline in death rates, although there was an article uh, in JAMA recently that showed that uh, death rates are 85% are, uh, higher here in the U.S. than other industrial countries. And uh, in part, that might uh, be due to the kind of underlying comorbidities that come from a country that doesn't provide health service. Um, but it might also have to do with uh, no follow-up whatsoever. I mean, uh, so there's a classic example of the 2,000 dead uh, found in the apartments in the first couple of weeks in April in New York City. Um, it's really remarkable that, uh, you know, we have a go-it-alone go attitude here in the States and, um, um, and, and people suffer for it and die for it uh, all along the way. But to have this and such uh, during uh, this time and, and to have it, um, you know, uh, on a personal level, but uh, also more broadly, uh, to have millions of people who have been effectively cut off, um, you know, lockdowns work in the sense of epidemiologically speaking. But they only work if you follow up by uh, with a, a broad uh, program of governance in which you send uh, higher and already have on hand, uh, you know, millions of, of uh, health workers uh, and 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 uh, community uh, health workers that would go around checking up on people and, and making sure that everybody has enough food. I mean, there are. You know, little Vietnam has doctors in every neighborhood and, and uh, you know, has uh, cheap food and even free food for people who are quarantining. I mean, if you set uh, the Hobbesian choice between uh, having to work and feed your family and, and going in and get, you know, and staying home and, and not being able to do so, uh, you know, you have basically selected for uh, people's reactions, which I totally understand. I mean, the utter awfulness of being uh, locked down, but the, without the follow-up uh, and uh, support, uh, you know, community support. I mean, and, and it was all there. I mean, we could have done it. I mean, I, uh, you know, uh, in, the, uh, in April, I believe the uh, U.S. Postal Service had a plan to send to every American a box of uh, masks and such, uh, and certainly that would have been helpful. But to sign in a signal to the American people that we uh, are, are those who rule us uh, would care enough of, a, of us uh, about us to uh, actually provide us uh, even the most simple uh, uh, PPE. But um, they uh, Trump put a quash on that, and that didn't happen. In fact, uh, every step along the way has been about uh, keeping good ideas from happening. Uh, so they were always there. I mean, and it's not just um, you know plans from the previous administration. I mean, you had. Uh, uh, all sorts of people along the way, um, you know, uh, nurses, doctors, uh, meatpackers, uh, everybody has some good ideas about what to do in terms of mitigating the outbreak and, and getting us forward. And every step along the way, uh, the bourgeoisie and the political class uh, quashed it to keep a, a system running that made sure you had a particular profit margin. Um, so uh, that's a long way to get to your question, Chuck. But uh uh, it, it, it's, in other words, we are confronted by a disease that required us to be a different kind of society. And you write that we are all bonded to epochal failures and a, 
leadership and institutional cognition. What, for instance, was someone who had worked through COVID's Imaginarium early on doing flying a week into March? That was you. I, too, had been infused with a peculiarly American moment wherein financial desperation meets imperial exceptionalism. I, too, had to travel for work, and nothing was going to happen to me. To you, what explains that exceptionalism when you are clearly not someone who believes in the ideas of American exceptionalism and innocence? Why do even those who are not exceptionalists still act as if they are exceptional at times, especially during when they're confronted with crisis? Because even as, as we are leftists in America, we are as much uh, more American than leftists in some ways because we accept the assumptions of a of uh, an enemy we uh, hate at the same time. So it's a terrible combination. And, uh, you know, we have uh, borne, you know, when I say we, I'm going to be very clear. I mean, there's a lot, many a million uh, Americans, many millions of Americans who would disagree with that statement. Uh, you know, if you're black or brown or immigrant in this country, a country that was basically built on genocide and slavery, you know what this country's about. And, uh, and uh, George Floyd uh, knew what this country was about. He went on the, uh, he would go on and, and uh, do videos about, uh, you know, this, uh, the terrible, you know, what it meant to be black in America. Uh, so he knew very well on that street corner what was happening to him. And um, uh, so that, let's be very clear about that. So uh, at the same time, um, I think it really speaks to the, uh, the rest of us to get our, our shit together and to be able to uh, understand um that we have more in common with uh, people elsewhere than those who rule us. I mean, I I think about um, you know uh, people suffering uh, Ebola in West Africa and the failure of uh, um, public health there uh, that has been structurally adjusted out into not being able to provide the health services necessary uh, to deal with that infection. I'm like, oh, this is exactly what's happening here in COVID uh, uh, here in the in the United States. So like uh, you know, at some point you make that break. Uh, and begin to understand that, um, you know, whether your skin color or, or your declining uh, uh, savings are, are not enough to protect you. And this is, uh, um, you know, we're at a historical moment that uh, is asking the people of the global north uh, uh, what direction are we going to go in? Because, um, you know, are we going to continue to latch ourselves upon a political class that has always exploited us, but uh, maybe gave us a few baubles along the way? Or are we going to finally, uh, you know, cross that uh, divide between global north and south, uh, recognize our brothers, sisters uh, uh, around the world who are in exactly in the same position as we are and begin to build a world in which uh, the needs of everyday people are, are met rather than taking the entirety of, of Earth's uh, environment and, and social wealth and just uh, putting it in a few billionaires accounts in the Cayman Islands. Um, so, but that requires us to, in effect, abandon what we were indoctrinated with. And, um, it goes deeper into the substrate of our ethos and our psychology than we might ever imagine. And so this is a time in which we, in essence, have to, uh, help each other, uh, birth ourselves anew and become a new, uh, person and new people that can accept uh, and, and move towards many of the assumptions about the nature of society and the environment that peoples around the world 
have already uh, been there for hundreds, if not thousands of years. You write that bad medicine is routinely tied to bad politics. You then quote political scientist J. Ricky Price, writing Dr. Fauci and the medical and research establishment rarely address systemic structural issues of poverty, racism, misogyny, and transphobia as concurrent problems in the fight against AIDS, nor do they mention the predominant strategy that the U.S. legislative and judicial branches have used for prevention, and that is criminalization. From what you have witnessed, witnessed, what are Dr. Anthony Fauci's politics? We are told he has survived Republican and Democratic presidents, which proves he can work with both sides or is somehow apolitical, but it is reported that he tends to vote Democrat. So what do Dr. Fauci's politics seem to be to you? Isn't he the centrist independent that the media sees as a nonpartisan hero every time they can find one? Well, I mean, there is an. I mean, I think what we're being led through. I mean, we're not just being trapped by COVID and, and sheltering in place by the virus. I mean, we are trapped also by a series of false dichotomies. So we're trapped between, you know, China versus the United States, Republicans versus Democrats, uh, politicians versus scientists, urban versus rural. Uh, hypotheses about the field origins of uh, COVID and the lab hypothesis of uh, COVID. Uh, these, in my mind, I mean, they're not. Uh, all the same, but they're also not all completely different from each other. And, uh, you know, getting to the politicians, you know, the politicians against the scientists, you know, clearly uh, Trump uh, didn't like what he heard and, uh, you know, put Fauci in his place. And it's not a a good spot that he's in. But uh, Fauci has been there for 40 years. He presided over, uh, you know, Reagan's response to uh, HIV. That wasn't a very good one. Uh, You might, uh, you know, See, mark that off to a kind of learning curve. But even from the very early days of HIV or even later on, um, as the, the quote uh, you read uh, speaks to, um, his was a decidedly so-called depoliticized uh, epidemiology that had uh, foundational impact on uh, millions of people and not in, and not in a good way. Uh, he is a political animal in, in some sense that, that you know, seems to be a good idea. You want someone who knows how to handle himself to be able to make his way uh, between uh, the various you know, political agendas that are circulating in Washington and elsewhere uh, as a way of protecting the kind of technicist cra- uh, class to allow them to do the work necessary to come up with uh, uh, vaccines and, and uh, other epidemiological interventions. But uh, in reality, I, I think he, he comes from what Tariq Ali calls the extreme center. Uh, I mean, that's a, it's its own uh, political class that, in essence, accepts the premises uh, of a capitalist system uh, that involves uh, expropriating millions of people and, uh, and uh, in part, CDC uh, and uh, uh, other, the other health agencies are, are an arm of the, uh, uh, the U.S. imperial power, both uh, um, internationally and domestically. And so, you know, coming out of World War II, the U.S. was in the position to, to you know, run the, the capitalist system. And uh, CDC was, it's not just all uh, army bases all around the world, right? CDC was, their, their job was to go and, and quash outbreaks um, in the service of keeping a system that was, in essence, unsustainable. Um, so what we're getting here is, it's a, 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 I would say it was funny, except uh, so many people have died from this. But in essence, we're getting presented a kind of uh, wrestling uh, kefebi, a kind of uh, uh, a kind of um, pandemic theater, 
in which the various uh, competing classes of, uh, of rulers are trying to maneuver uh, blame upon each other, even though they were totally in cahoots and on the same page with this. Uh, you know, in the early days of the outbreak, um, Fauci uh, uh, published a uh, commentary with some colleagues about a couple papers that came in, in which he, he basically soft-pedaled uh, uh, COVID-19 as being more along the lines of, an inf of, a, of a flu uh, uh, outbreak in terms of mortality and stuff. So what do you think, what kind of advice do you think he was giving Trump? And this is no way, you know, washes Trump's filthy hands and bloody hands of any of this. Um, but certainly uh, his bad takes, uh, meaning Fauci's bad takes, uh, were in essence, uh, you know, driving Trump administration's decisions about some of these things. And uh, so, you know, they both have things to be blamed for. But if you're trapped in a world in which you have Republicans versus Democrats, and Fauci uh, uh, is speaking out on some things that need to be heard, but they're more along the lines of, uh, you know, the kind of uh, uh, technicist intervention of, you know, wearing masks and vaccines and, and you know, whether, you know, wash your hands and all this shit, which is, you know, of course, that's that's like about, you know, really about as low a bar as you can go to. But in terms of, of speaking to, uh, you know, you know, what is in essence uh, uh, an expression of racial capitalism. I mean, if you look at the meatpacking plants, which are largely, uh, you know, minority uh, black and brown uh, who are, are there, he, you know, I mean, there's been almost nothing from uh, Fauci along the lines of, uh, you know, why don't you speak out and say, uh, you know, use the production, you know, Defense Production Act to produce PPE, but not to keep the meatpacking plants open. And he's not going to do that. Why? Because agribusiness is one of the driving political forces in the United States. And even as uh, meat consumption in the U.S. has been uh, flat, uh, flat since the 1980s, uh, a lot of the meat packers are expanding operations because they uh, need to, they had the Chinese market to exploit. So even as the agribusiness were very much, uh, you know, crying out, we need the Defense Production Act to keep the meat packing plants open in order to feed the American people. I mean, you had record exports to China. So there, there's another of the false dichotomies, the U.S. against China. Um, when in, in all aspects, you have basically these interlocking directorates uh, across countries uh, operating under the assumption that the capitalist system is the way to go. And uh, peoples around the world are, are left to die, whether that be in war or on their couches from COVID. Um, so, uh, you know, Fauci is signed on to that program. He wouldn't be in there for 40 years unless he accepted those assumptions. So, um, you know, he, in essence, was part of the, uh, uh, you know, the, the neoliberal abandonment of public health, as it were, and, and, and fixating on the technicist interventions that would make pharmaceutical uh, companies uh, many a buck. Um, so, you know, it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, whether or not Brad Pitt, you know, plays Fauci on uh, SNL, whether or not, uh, you know, all along the eastern seaboard, uh, you know, you have bakers making uh, donuts with Fauci's face on it. Uh, in the end, uh, you know, what we should be outraged about is that we were uh, failed by a political class that goes from uh, Republican to Democrats. Somehow the Democrats can't get, uh, you know, you know, it's not a matter of mere votes, right? Somehow they're not able to get this the second piddling uh, CARES package out so that Americans can actually survive uh, waiting out for uh, uh, some intervention or cure that may not be coming. Um, I mean, 
this, but the, the, the false dichotomies offer that kind of theater that allow us to basically confuse what are our interests as uh, people, both here in America and abroad, and who rules us, and who put us in this spot, and who will continue to put us in, our, in this spot, because by virtue of this mode of social reproduction, this uh, economic system, uh, COVID-19 will in all likelihood be followed by various COVIDs, COVID-20, 21, 23, avian influenza, 24, on and on. Um, and um, the um, political economy and, and uh, paradigms available to us right now are incapable of, of the interventions necessary to uh, keep us from being infected this way. Other countries don't have this problem. I mean, they, as I said earlier, um, you know, very different countries from each other uh, saw governance as taking care of their people and whatever their faults are. Uh, they made the decisions to quash their outbreaks without a vaccine. One last question for you, Rob. We've been speaking with epidemiologist Rob Wallace, author of the new book, Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. Again, this is Rob's third appearance on our show. He appeared with Alex Liebman back in April to discuss an essay, COVID-19 and Circuits of Capital, which is included in the book, Dead Epidemiologists. To hear that interview, go to thisishell.com and search on Rob's name and find more of our conversations on Rick's, on Rob's and uh, Alex's uh, writing. One last question for you, and as we always do, our final question is the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you might hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. So you point out that the United States and China, neither one seems to be willing to point towards global globalized capitalism as having any role in the spread of the pandemic. You write the world is, or suddenly only once was, the U.S.'s client state. In fighting other states over petty bilaterals, the uh, bright bulbs trade. The United States has lost the begrudged loyalty it owned nearly lock, stock, and barrel. American power, for instance, is on the hook for cleaning up pandemics. The capital the world over helps create in order to keep the system on the same development path, despite the ultimately catastrophic alienation in land and labor. How much is the Trump administration's response to COVID-19 a threat to global capitalism. If the world is no longer a collection of U.S. client states, which are dominated through the U.S. application of global capitalism, is is his response a threat not only to global cap or lack of response, not only to global capitalism, but U.S. global dominance? And, and what would you say to someone who argues that's a good thing? End of U.S. capital power and end of U.S. empire. That's a really good thing. Would an effective response challenge capitalism just as much as a lack of response would, and which explains kind of the Trump administration's confused response to COVID-19? Yeah, well, I, I think, um, well, look, Trump uh, uh, ran in 2016 to, you know, uh, develop some financing that he needed at the time. I don't think he expected to win, um, but that speaks to what uh, Obama and the, you know, previous Democratic administrations did to the American people. I mean, if you look at the... Um, uh, you know, graphs showing the uh, d uh, diseases of despair, things like alcoholism, opioid, uh, obesity, against uh, for counties across the United States, against the change in voting from Obama 2012 to 2016. You know, it's the Midwest and the South that suffered the worst of those d diseases of despair uh, that made the biggest leaps from Obama to, to Trump. 
And so it was, uh, in essence, a declaration that um, indeed um, uh, much of the country was abandoned. And in my mind, that speaks to the fact that we're on the other side of our cycle of, of, of accumulation and that uh, our bourgeoisie are turning uh, uh, capital back into money. They're, they're cashing out. And so they, we're exiting empire and they're selling off all, uh, all the uh, you know, uh, uh, commons that we share. And so um, this opens up, uh, you know, a, a window for, you know, fascistic uh, 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 personas to uh, arise and try to fill in what the political class can't deliver anymore. I mean, he's completely incapable of doing it. Will there be a fascist persona that follows him that is a lot smarter and capable of making better promises? Uh, that might very well be the case. Um so I, I would say that, um, you know, uh, when empires rise, it sucks for everybody. Um, and when empires fall, it sucks for everybody. I mean, you know, it's uh, it's not going to be a good thing. <clears throat> Certainly the U.S., when it operates well, it's it's a terrible thing for, for most of the world. But certainly when the uh, as the U.S. falls apart, um, you know, it, it uh, you know, we have, in essence, uh, an enraged um, pit bull. Uh, that may go around and uh, attempt to externalize its internal decline by going to war. Uh, do we want the U.S. to go to war with China? No, that would be a disaster. Um, as far as um, who would fill in, I mean, we've spoken about this before, Chuck, but, uh, you know, it might be that China is on its front end of its cycle of accumulation, uh, that it's turning money into capital and explains in part its building infrastructure around the world including getting uh, countries elsewhere to raise its hog because of the environmental damage that's happening domestically in China. So that's why we have the you know, U.S. companies here raising hog for import for China uh, and also newly uh, asking Argentina to allow operations in there. And I mean, you know, we don't have to have a, a sinophobic reaction to that. I mean, this has to do with the, the cycles of, of capitalism. But the problem is, is that we're coming up against various environmental precipices, which say that um, uh, may say that no, the, the Chinese aren't going to be able to do that because uh, we're all heading toward um, these limits on our capacity to treat the world as if it has uh, offering infinite amount of resources. So that explains in part, um, you know, uh, the climate change that we're coming in. I mean, you know, watching the orange skies or, over San Francisco. I mean, have we already forgotten that a couple weeks later? I mean, uh, uh, and COVID-19 uh, will be followed by other pathogens that are going to be uh, um, global in scope. Um, all those marginalized pathogens like Ebola and Zika, they started giving themselves elbow room and spreading to these regional uh, pathogens and regional outbreaks. And uh, some of them now are, are uh, hitting the big stage. So uh, COVID-19, um, that was something of surprise. It shouldn't have been. SARS were circulating through South and Central China for a long time uh, and spilling over into human populations on a regular, on a regular schedule. And the avian influenzas and swine flus are, are continuing to circuit. We haven't done anything about uh, industrial uh, livestock and how we raise them. Um, and we continue to cut into forest, the last of the forest. I mean, there's a compulsive, uh, it's a compulsion that's built into the system itself. And um, we, um, can we get out of it? Yeah, we, we need to basically end capitalism as we know it, or better yet, just end capitalism and, and choose a economic system that in essence returns us back uh, 
uh, to Earth, uh, reintegrates uh, hu uh, humanity into an ecology that it's been a part of all along. We've just been pretending otherwise. Um, we could move to a, a place where, uh, in our mind and, and the way we run society, in which um, um, we can appropriate things from Earth. Um, we, we have a right to survive and continue uh, as a society, and but uh, uh, we can't expropriate it in, until there's nothing left. Um, turning Earth to Mars is not a good place to be. It would, in essence, uh, uh, at best lead to the end of civilization and at worst, uh, the end of our species. So we are a historical moment to make a choice and uh, I hope that we make the right choice. And I am certainly willing and able to work with anybody across the political spectrum that's prepared to make uh, that decision to become, as we discussed earlier, to become a, 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 a new kind of human or a different kind of human or a human that actually understands that we are living here in a shared ecology, and that shared ecology is what we need to survive. Rob, I cannot thank you enough for being back on our show. Rob Wallace is author of Dead Epidemiologists on the Origins of COVID-19. You can hear our previous conversations with Rob by going to thisishell.com and searching on his name. Thank you so much for being back on our show. And again, I know I say this a lot to, uh, on the show, but uh, this we just skimmed the surface of this book. We could have had another two hours of conversation about this. You really, really need to check out Rob's new book. It's the best writing I've seen so far on COVID-19, Dead Epidemiologist on the Origins of COVID-19. Thank you so much for being back on our show. It's been a pleasure, Chuck. Thank you very much. All right. Take care, Rob. All right. Capitalism is the virus, and this is hell. This week's question from hell is, what else will fall with the autumn leaves? What else will fall with the autumn leaves? The person with our favorite answer gets our new gray on black This Is Hell t-shirt, which you can see right now by going to our website, thiscell.com, and clicking on support. You can leave your answer to this week's question from hell at our Facebook page. You can tweet it to us. You can email it to us. But you have to have your response in by the end of the show on Thursday following the moment of truth. On this week's moment of truth, Jeff shows up with the conclusion of the of his spiel on class consciousness. Alex, Jess, do, does one of you have more answers to this week's question? Oh, from yeah. What will fall along with the autumn leaves? What will fall with the autumn leaves? No WW says the veil is not going to be lifted. It's about to fall apart. Everyone is going to realize that this is hell and all the black budgets brought us was totalitarian governments with total <laughs> surveillance and a breakaway civilization headed nowhere, expanding the free markets in our state subsidized Stalinist black triangles. <laughs> Onwards, comrades. Uh, David Z says, My illusions that after the pandemic, my life will really be all that different than it is now. <laughs> Eric T says, A haiku, the fall. Autumn leaves will fall, you see, much like dictators. Lovely blood red orange. Oh, very nice. I hope we this get the more. First haiku we've had on this. <laughs> I was going to say. Uh, Jeffrey D says, A piece of Antarctica the size of Vermont into the sea. <laughs> It will fall along with the autumn leaves. Adam K says, my optimism in the future. Joshua J says, the fallen angels, and it's about damn time. Lisa B says, everyone's vitamin D levels. <laughs> and finally, uh, Fabio L says, voter turnout. Alex, who is on tomorrow's Wednesday's live one-hour show here at thisiscell.com at 10 a.m. Chicago time. I'm really excited about this. Uh, Zhao Wei Wang is going to be on to talk about their book, Blockchain Chicken Farm, and other stories of tech in China's countryside. And just to remind people, Thursday? 
Uh, Thursday, we're going to have Danielle Purifoy on to talk about her Scalawag Mag article, Knock on Wood, how Europe's weed, or weed pellet, sorry, (laughs) ears perked up there, Chuck. Knock on Wood, how Europe's wood pellet appetite fuels environmental racism in the U.S. South. I'd not heard of weed pellets. Maybe I can put those in my Instapot. We'll have more of your answers to this week's question from hell on tomorrow's show. And again, on Thursday's show, as we wrap up most weeks, we will have the moment of truth with Jeff Dorchin. I'm your bitter, blind, broke, gap-toothed radio show host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Alex and Jess for producing today's show. Also, thanks for our guest, Rob Wallace. Staring into the abyss so you don't have to, this is hell. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.